Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. We continue our Lenten podcast series this week by looking at the spiritual practice of generosity with professor, author, and poet, Marilyn McIntyre. Generosity, or to use more ancient language, charity or almsgiving, was a practice Christians historically emphasized during Lent. And while providing material support to those in need is certainly a vital part of charity and love of neighbor, in this episode, Marilyn challenges us to broaden our understanding of what generosity can mean. The book of Proverbs teaches us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And in this conversation, Dr. McIntyre argues that caring for language is inextricably bound up with our caring for others. It's our hope that the conversation which follows stretches your categories of generosity and caregiving this week as we consider together what it means to attend to our language and to practice charity with our words. With that, here's today's conversation. What does it mean to care for language? And what's the connection between caring for our words uh, and caring for our neighbor? Well, an analogy that I use in the book that I think is pretty apt is the matter of caring for the environment, caring for the soil that we grow crops in, caring for the whole process of making food. It seems to me that caring for words is like that. The discourse or the discursive environment we inhabit is like the natural environment we inhabit. Words can get used up. Some words need to lie fallow for a while. Words can be harvested to and treated as resources and exploited like resources, or they can be really carefully cultivated for good use. So I think that's a fair analogy to play with. So one of your strategies for caring for words is, not surprisingly, to love them and to be grateful for them. And you've now written over 20 books yourself, several of which actually have to do with reading and writing. So presumably that is something that is near and dear to your own heart. How did you come to learn to love words and love to read? Were there any particular books that inspired that love or what was your journey in that area? Well, certainly the long story starts and I won't tell the long story, but it starts with growing up in a three generation household of people who talked at the dinner table and read us stories and read us psalms and prayed with us. And so I lived in an environment of words that was very rich. We didn't have much money, but we had a lot of words. And I think to say something about more recent um, direction in my life with words is to say that when I discovered the ancient Benedictine practice of Lectio Divina, which is a practice of reading in Benedict's case, sacred scripture, very small section at a time, and listening for the word or phrase that speaks to you. That was a liberating moment. And I think it helped, something clicked when I learned about Lectio that had already implicitly been there in loving poetry. But it is to say that if you pause over a word or a phrase, rather than an idea or a whole sentence you and you say what was that that word just opened a door it triggered something it brought something up what was that and it 
allows you to go in rather than go on through the rest of the sentence. So that practice of allowing time when I read to go in before I go on has been helpful in my own spiritual and intellectual life. And also it's anybody out there who's a former student will know that that's one of the things that they hear a lot. Yeah, that seems to pick up on an idea that you mentioned throughout your book that um, part of caring for words is not just reading or reading a lot, but really learn to read well. And that there is a, a qualitative difference in reading well between that and say, just sort of skimming uh, for information. Uh, you actually said how we choose to read, how we submit to or question the terms set by the writer are the choices that shape the habits of our mind and the habits of our hearts. So I'd love for you just to break down for our viewers, how does one learn to read well? So I think the first thing I would say about reading well is slow down which all by itself is really countercultural. Everything in the culture says, speed up, get through it, build your momentum, complete things. And so slowing down has to be really intentional. And I think it helps to have communities within which we support one another in that. Reading groups, discussion groups, study groups, prayer groups. Um, the second thing I would say about reading well is to pause where it gives you pause. Um, so as I said, to pause over a word or phrase or a paragraph or passage or a line in a poem and say, wait, what was that? Is to always include a subjective dimension of listening. I think that we learn to hold a text at arm's length and, as you say, mine it for what's there because we head in with our own purposes. I want to get the gist. I want to find out. Mm -hmm. But I think another dimension to reading well is to read with a kind of openness to being taught. What is there here for me? That might not be new information, but maybe just a slight reframing of something I think I already know. And listening for words that awaken us. That's so subjective, and it's difficult to hang on to that subjectivity in academic environments, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned learning to listen for works that awaken us, which is a beautiful way of expressing uh, that thought. And one of the things it seems like you have been particularly concerned with in your work are the loss of words that might awaken us the weakening and attenuation and shrinking um, of our vocabulary. You make the fascinating point that as usable words are lost, human experience becomes cruder and less communicable. And with a loss of subtlety, clarity, and reliability of language, we become more vulnerable to crude exercises of power. And I think that really evokes sort of two questions there. Uh, one, how does a loss of language make our personal lives cruder? But then also on a societal level, how does it lead um, to our vulnerability to oppression? Well, the vulnerability to oppression certainly has to do with the fact that in authoritarian regimes and dictatorships, when when people have been subjected to crude exercises of power, one of the instruments that's always used is, a, is sloganeering, reducing things to slogans that then become the currency that people exchange to 
uh, decide that they're in the same club. And so in order to resist that, it seems to me that we need to hang on to that middle ground between the polarized opposites. There's so much in current discourse that is sharply divided now between right and left, Republican, Democrat, you know, that just all of the bifurcations that we see in American culture. So it seems to me that the challenge is to stay in the gray area, stay in the middle ground. And I, I use Jane Austen often as an example of a writer who inhabited a culture where there was much more nuanced language, not that we need to go back to 18th century speech, but she really makes a distinction between when a character is confused or perplexed or irritated or vexed or agreeable or amiable. You know, all of those now slightly quaint words suggest very thoughtful, careful distinctions between different states of mind and different dimensions of character. So those are the things it seems to me that we lose when we have so many hyperboles and just say, oh, that was great. Or that's so exciting. That's terrific. Or what a disaster. Or this is a crisis. Think how often we hear the word crisis rather than this is a problem or um, this is a moment to step back and reconsider what do, we, what do we need here? So I'm not suggesting that our language should become more bland. I think it's really important to have very strong forthright handed language. Mm -hmm. But to find the place where the word really nails what it exactly it is that we mean, means constantly asking ourselves, what, what do I really mean by that? You know, that sort of provokes a question about not only sort of the polarities of language or the specificity, but also even the categories. You know, a couple of years ago, we hosted David Brooks to talk about his book, The Road to Character. And one of the things he mentioned in his book, which I thought was such a, an elegant and sort of creative way to illustrate a shift in culture is he essentially used Google N-words to track language usage over time and found something that won't surprise you, which is that the amount of times that the language of self and individuality has increased dramatically, words like community, common good have decreased. The language around markets, branding, finances, the economy has shot up. Uh, language around morality and virtue has fallen precipitously. Words like kindness, bravery, courage and humbleness, he actually found their usage declined by over half. And I'd love to get your thoughts and reflections about how the decline of the, the categories of our vocabulary might affect the common good. Well, I love your summary of what Brooks was talking about. I think that one of the factors here is the, the retreat into abstractions. Ezra Pound was the one that said, go in fear of abstractions. And sometimes I've given short assignments to students to say, okay, you, you need to write this, but you don't get to use any word that ends with ISM or M-E-N-T or N-E-S-S or T-I-O-N, no abstractions. And it's difficult to navigate a public conversation without encountering Words, even a good word like justice, deserves for somebody to say, well, what exactly do you mean by that? What does justice look like? And can we talk about 
the treatment of accused people? Or can we talk about a justice system and how it works? But, but it seems to me that increasingly, in addition to what Brooks said, I would observe that we tend to deal in abstractions far more, which generally mean that we protect ourselves from having to actually name things that are uncomfortable. I imagine we have a fair number of viewers who are thinking that is fascinating and I'd love to expand my vocabulary or encourage my children to broaden and expand their vocabulary and make their word usage more specific. What advice would you give them about how to build a vocabulary to find and use the right word, not only to more um, precisely convey meaning, but also to imbue meaning? an experience? Well, first of all, I would say that expanding your vocabulary doesn't mean necessarily finding more sophisticated words. Mm -hmm. It might mean using more precise words, which is, wait, what exactly are you talking about? If you're talking about a bird, what kind of bird is it? Mm -hmm. Where did you see it? And give it some context. So um, really making a practice of getting very particular nouns and verbs that actually get at the process. People throw their verbs away. It's tragic. I had a little section in there on parts of speech, but, but verbs are where we answer the question, how did that happen? What happened? And we live so much in a culture that's focused on product that I think process gets backgrounded. But a good verb really is revelatory in uh, helping people to understand connections, to connect the dots and see process. So I'd say, again, go in before you go on, before expanding your vocabulary, just really make choices that get as close to what you're actually talking about as possible. I think, what do you mean and what do I mean are two of the most important questions we can hold as we enter public conversation. You know, I'd actually wanted to ask you about verbs. At one point, you say that getting verbs right is one of the most important aspects of writing, which actually struck me as sort of interesting, given that you've written a book entitled Adverbs for Advent, but, uh, and no book about verbs yet. But why is it that verbs of all the different parts of speech you believe are the most important to caring for words well? Because I think the difference between it was gutted or it was damaged or it was impaired or it was prevented from something. You know, those kinds of, when damage has been done, what kind of damage has been done? And I think if you get at a verb that says, here is what happened as closely as possible. If you say this was rooted out, that's different from saying this was solved or this was reframed or shifted or undermined or extracted. You know, there are lots of ways in which we can deal with a public problem. And if you just start to scan for the verbs in news stories about healthcare or about whatever decisions are being made on the floor of Congress or about what the military is doing, many of them veil actual events and so I think a lot of the courage and candor that can be exercised by good writers is right in that verb. So one of the perhaps surprising stewardship strategies you mentioned in terms of caring for words is to cherish silence. 
and it, which is something we actually have very little of now. And so I would love for you to reflect on why you believe valuing and preserving silence is so vital to caring for words. Well, I think musicians and poets really know that silence is part of the texture of a composition or a text. If you don't have the rests in there, you don't have music. If you don't have all that white space on the page, you don't have a poem. And even paragraphing is a way of building in a space for a breath. I think that the long history of certainly Christian tradition, but I would say any spiritual or wisdom tradition we know has some version of enter into silence in order to hear what the spirit has to say to you. Go into a quiet place in order to hear your own conscience, your own self. And anyone who's ever tried to meditate or pray knows how difficult it is to shut down the inner chatter, which is the reflection of the outer chatter. But I would bet that most of us have had the experience of just listening to the radio in the car a little bit too long and feeling jangled. So there's something in ourselves that I think is like thirst for silence. You breathe differently in silence. Um, your, your heart can open differently in silence. And I really mean the deep silence that has no agenda, that just says, here I am. I love the stories in Samuel of um, Eli telling Samuel just to say, here I am. I'm open, I'm available, I'm waiting. I don't need to do anything right now, just be. I remember um, a professor of mine in graduate school said, you tend to rush to meaning when you're examining a text or metaphor. He said, just let things be before you make them mean. And I thought that was a really fascinating piece of advice. Just let things be. And I think a lot of very earnest people, especially in my experience, want to rush to meaning. This is important because but maybe you could just rest with this is important or even with this is. Thanks so much for joining us on this Lenten journey exploring the spiritual practices. To listen to this or any of our conversations in full, please visit our website at ttf.org.